Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie McLaughlin here. We're on Solidarity Breakfast at 3CR and today we're celebrating International Day of Disabled People. We're going to, uh, this is the International Day of uh people with disabilities and we're going to celebrate it all day on 3CR because it's such an important day and we're going to look at uh, some of the issues, politics uh, that have been brought to the fore by uh, people with disabilities as they become more and more vocal about their their rights as citizens. So today we're going to start off with a little bit of a look, a small perusal of some of the milestones, political milestones for people with disabilities. And we're going to move on with a look at sport and recreation, which is an important part of anybody's life, but particularly for people with disabilities. It helps in a whole range of ways to increase life's joys as well as longevity. So we're going to talk to the CEO of uh, Disability Sports and Recreation, and uh, you might have been aware that on December the 1st, they had their annual Sports and Recreation Day down by the Yarra. The great fun was had by all. And uh, it's very illuminating to discover what people can do in the physical world when they've got uh, a variety of disabilities. Uh, because, of course, everything gets set up for people, uh, the mythical 30-year-old male who is fit and trim. Anyway... That's coming up later on, and uh, th- you will be relieved to know that uh, Kevin Healy, This Is The Week That Was, will be played at 8.20, even on a special day like this. And uh, the last half hour we're going to devote to looking at uh, wage justice, because it's a long-term thing when it comes to people with disabilities. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. I'm not disabled. I'm only disabled by society's inability to provide me with the supports and services I need. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability all day, Saturday 3rd of December with 3CR. There's got to be inclusive thinking, there's got to be inclusive action and there's got to be inclusive practising. Why the hell aren't we a bigger voting bloc? You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast celebrating International Day of people with disabilities. And as I said, we are going to have a look at 
A few of the milestones in the political struggle for people with disabilities. The mantra, nothing about us, without us, is a slogan embraced by people with disability and in fact is represented in part by the very fact that there is a UN-designated day, December the 3rd, today, as International Day of People with Disability. This happened in 1992, the same year the Disability Discrimination Act was passed. But people with disability and their supporters have been fighting a long, hard battle to get their basic rights as citizens. They're still fighting. Let's go back and check some of the milestones in this fight in Australia. For people with disability in the 1970s, a medical model of disability prevailed. The majority of people with disability were denied their basic rights, with institutionalisation still standard. Let's hear some voices of those who experienced this. My mother put me into queue when I was a boy, when I, I, I went from place to place. Still, they took me to Kula. They said, you are only here for a holiday. What was not true? I was in a locked ward. I was in an institution for about 30 years. I got no training. I learned to read and write after I left. We did not get good health care. If you said you had a headache, the staff would just tell you to drink plenty of, of cold water. It was not safe. One time there was a fight in this with this guy got his arm broken. He did not get a doctor for a long time because all the staff were in upper rooms talking. I wasn't bashed, but other people I know were. I was not taken into the shed on the farm. Other people I know were. Everybody were too scared to tell on them. It was cold at night with only one blanket and pillow. The mattress was well thin. If you did not get up in the morning, they throw a bucket of water on you. The food come from the kitchen in the grounds, and it was cold. The tea tasted if it had salt in it, bitter and cold. If you come in late for breakfast or lunch or dinner, they'll throw you out. You did not get anything to eat. Some staff were okay. Some staff were very bad. One staff member used to run football games, but when he moved into administration, it all stopped. Other, other times, staff made up lies about me. When I got up, they said, no, no, no breakfast for you, and I was taken to Mont Park Hospital. The doctor said, the staff said, you had talking about killing yourself. And I said, no, but I never did. But they didn't believe me. And I had shock, tre shock treatment for five, for five years. 
they they wanted to keep me keep me at Mom Park, and I was a good worker in cleaning up the ward. I did not know why the staff made up stories about me. Maybe they did not have anything to do. I ran away, but the staff saw me on the highway, and the police picked me up and brought me back for punishment. They stripped me off in, in the Robert and Marlene Brewer were also residents at Kalula Training Centre, and I asked them about their memories of Sunbury. Well, I used to be in Sunbury, and they used to treat us like uh, nothing on earth. They used to treat us really rough, really bad. And if you go out, don't come back. They come after you and bring you back. I'll lock you up. It's a bad place to live in for anybody. So how long did you live there, Robert? Uh, I was there for about 24 years. That's a long time. It is a long time. No, the food was no good. Terrible. Very bad stuff. Couldn't eat it. And they used to put us on uh, low-actual tablets and low-actual syrup. And uh, real bad stuff. Did you live in Sunbury too, Marlene? Yeah, I went there when I was 18. They do rotten things up there. They lock you in the single room, four of us, and someone come around and uh, she got into trouble giving them bread and water, no food. That's disgusting. It is disgusting. How long were you there, Marlene? Too long. So, you did you meet yeah, Sunbury? Yeah. Yeah, I was signed to get married when I was older. So, what, what's your life like now that you're not in somewhere like Sunbury? Uh, my life much better. I got myself out up there, Sunbury. So, Robert's the best man. That sounds good. What makes you the best man, Robert? Uh, because I look after her. And uh, also go out to work. Selling the big issue in the city. Yeah, uh, down near Flagstaff Station. And it uh, keeps me busy. When I get home, I feel like I'm having my lunch and lay down and have a sleep. And, uh... 1975 marks the UN Declaration on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. By 1979, and by the 1980s, we find the next step in the empowerment of disabled people, public protest and self-advocacy. The first demonstration of disabled people and their supporters at a Sydney train station was received by shocked establishment. Julie Phillips, a disability advocate. This was the, about the opening of an eastern suburbs railway in 1979. It's Australia. Um, This protest was directed at the lack of wheelchair accessibility to public transport in Australia. Gee, lucky things have changed so much, isn't it? Ha, ha, ha. Um, And a group of about 15 people in wheelchairs and about 10 people without disabilities participated in this rally. It's obviously New South Wales. Premier Neville Rand admitted in 1981. The International Year of Disabled People... Um, was the first to introduce a wheelchair-accessible taxi service into Australia. 
And haven't we come a long way there as well? Where's Frank? There we go. No. Um, that he was inspired to do because of this protest. Although not every single bus, train and station is accessible, the Disability Discrimination Act stipulates that total accessibility of all public transport is to be achieved within the decade. I just left that there for a joke, really. Nineteen eighty one saw the founding of Reinforce, a self advocacy organization run for and by people with an intellectual disability, while Women with Disabilities Feminist Collective loudly protested the Miss Australia Beauty Quest. This was an initiative by disability activist Leslie Hall, and this also shocked the Australian public. Miss Australia Quest was a beauty pageant that ran from 1954 until 2000. Hands up if you're old enough to know... Oh, no. Yep, good on you to know that. Miss Australia. Whereby Miss Australia would raise money for the Spastic Centre of Australia, another lovely PC name, uh, through their family and friends. However, some people with disabilities started protesting against the pageant due to its focus on stereotyped images of physical perfection and the ethics of a charity fundraising in that manner. Protesters felt that they were belittled by the beauty quest and that the Spastic Society, which organised the contest, was exploiting their disabilities in order to raise money. The protests received significant press coverage and provoked a range of responses, including strong support from people within the Spastic Society and other disability charities and also criticism from people with disabilities. Despite the objections, the protests marked a symbolic shift in the mode of public thinking about the place of people with disabilities in Australian society. There's been plenty of protests against you know, beauty contests and stuff uh, from feminist kind of perspectives, you know. But very rarely has ever a, a protest against a beauty statement because of a disability issue. You know, the fact that sort of that these people are kind of perfect human beings, you yes. know, the, the perfect model walking across, you know, no limp, no nothing. And is that why you think she's used SS? Yeah. As in, like, a Nazi? Yeah. 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 And so this is the kind of thing that happens with that, that, you know, you don't mind if we're sexist because what we're trying to do is raise money for the disabled. No one could conceive that anyone would be able to protest. So that was the amazing nexus that she broke through. She was able to say, no, that is not enough. That is not good enough, you know. And she broke that nexus. And once she broke that, the import of what she had done had literally... Start of the dynamite, I think. You know. By 1986 to seven, the Self Advocacy Resource Unit was set up to resource self advocacy groups across Victoria. Its motto was, "We are stronger when we work together." The groundbreaking 3CR Raising Our Voices starts giving a voice to people with intellectual disabilities. You are now listening to Raising Our Voices, 8.55 and on your radio dial. This show is produced by a miser and reinforced. Looking at accommodations, right 
for people with intellectual disabilities with focus on housing issues. I'm not disabled. I'm only disabled by society's inability to provide me with the supports and services I need. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability all day, Saturday 3rd of December with 3CR. There's got to be inclusive thinking. There's got to be inclusive action and there's got to be inclusive practising. Why the hell aren't we a bigger voting bloc? During the 1990s, with increasing pressure from people with disabilities and their supporters, we see the federal government passed the Disability Discrimination Act, while in 2006 the UN adopted the International Convention on Rights of People with Disabilities, which Australia ratifies in 2008. Matthew Bowden, a former CEO of the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations, gives an insight into the importance of this declaration as he talks about the rights of people with disability to intimacy. So Anne Craft was writing about that in, in the 1980s and of course now we have the United Nations Convention, or CRPD as I'll refer to it. Basically it was fantastic that CRPD spoke directly at the sexual rights of people with disability, the right to sort of marry and, and form a family, uh, the right to um, receive family planning, uh, reproductive uh, assistance, uh, sexuality education, to exercise rights. One thing that I was really delighted to, to see in the convention was around retaining fertility um, for both women and for children, uh, particularly girls with disability, um, where you know, it really spoke at the issue of sterilisation. States... Uh, have a responsibility to enable people with disability to parent and assist them in in areas where they might need assistance and it also spoke about including and keeping children with disabilities in families it also spoke up the overrepresentation of children of parents uh, who have disability in care and protection systems it basically says that intervention should never be based on the parent having disability, but only should be occur in the case of the best interests of the child, where there clearly is abuse or neglect occurring. Um, and in the instances where uh, family placement not being possible, um, that uh, alternative uh, placements must occur in family settings, which obviously, obviously speaks at children not being placed in children's homes or institutions when a family placement breaks down. So it was great that we got that. Um, Sterilisation still occurs in Australia of um, particularly uh, mostly women and girls with disability. There are excessive and extreme controls of the sexualities of women and there seems to be an enormous fear and I think that this also sort of ties in with um, the notions of eugenics of women's capacity to have children and that those children might also have disability and this is something that society seems to be really um, frightened of. Obviously there are enormous negative psychological and physiological impacts of a woman having sterilisation without her consent or knowledge or, or being coerced into it. 
We also do work in the area of the sort of over-prescription or the readiness of um, doctors to prescribe um, anti-androgenic medication. These are medications to control the libidos of men where there's sort of unwanted sexual behaviour. However, we're often seeing this not being prescribed for men who are sex offenders um, as a part of a sort of treatment programme but often men with intellectual disability who are masturbating more than somebody thinks that they should or masturbating in a place where somebody thinks that they shouldn't be doing it. We're seeing anti-androgenic medication being prescribed in boys as young as you know, 12 and 13 years old where no other attempts have been made to educate those boys about where might be an appropriate place to masturbate or any sort of education programs it's straight to the drugs cabinet and um, you know slamming them down Uh, and I mean I, I view this as a sort of form of chemical castration. We most commonly have seen this being used in men who are Aboriginal or uh, men who are from other culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and I don't think that that is a a coincident or accident at all. The sterilisation of women um, has an enormous impact on them, of course. It also has an impact on people in their community. It has an impact on their partners. The, you know, I've worked with men with intellectual disability who've spoken to me about their sort of sadness at not being able to be a father because of what was done to their partner and the impact that it's had on them and their relationship. So it's not just an isolated thing that, that only the woman who has the operation experiences. We do quite a bit of work around um, people uh, with intellectual disability who are living with HIV AIDS. Again, we see an appalling response from um, disability support services, health providers uh, and people in the community where there's enormous amounts of stigma and discrimination um, towards those individuals and a great attempt to control them. Um, These are people that we see being um, contained and often without any sort of approval from um, guardianship, where people are kept away for the benefit of, you know, supposedly for the benefit of the community. We've most often seen this occur for women um, who are living with HIV, for Aboriginal people and, again, uh, people from uh, culturally and linguistically diverse background. Again, I don't think it's an accident who we're deciding to um, keep away from our communities and that we think are dangerous or that we should be afraid of. People obviously have the right to information. Information means that people will be safe. This is one of the things that we advocate for. Access to... Um, sexual and reproductive health services is something else that we see as critical. Let's hear from disability advocate Rhonda Galbelli, give some insight into how things stand for people with disabilities in Australia by 2009, as she talks at the Press Council about Shut Out, the experience with disabilities and their families in Australia report. What does it mean to be an Australian with a disability in 2009? What is life like in the lucky country, in this land of the fair go, if you're a son or daughter of this sunburnt country? One answer we might expect would be a citizen with the same rights as everyone else. 
But if you have a physical, sensory, psychiatric or intellectual disability, what is life really like? Many Australians would say, it's better, isn't it? The bad old days are gone, aren't they? The horror and abuse that went on in institutions, that's all gone now, hasn't it? The poverty, the discrimination, the exclusion, the fear and hatred, that's all ancient history, isn't it? Women and men of the National Press Club, I would love to be able to say, yes, that is all ancient history, but I can't. I'm here to tell you that despite this nation enjoying the longest economic boom in its history, very little has changed for most Australians with a disability. They are still discriminated against. They are still abused. They are still isolated. They are still living in poverty. And they are still treated with fear and loathing in their own country. And if you don't believe me, let me tell you a story. A young man with Down syndrome goes to a cafe with a group of his friends. The cafe's in a public park. The young man becomes separated from his group. Lost, he walks around the park looking for his friends and he comes to a playground. And there are some families in the playground. And as this young man has younger siblings, he tries to talk to the children. But one of the dads screams at him to get away from the kids. And now the young man is scared and he tries to ask some of the adults at the playground for help. So what do these parents do to help this young man with an intellectual disability who is lost, alone and scared? They all scream at him too and no one helps him. He is shunned, he is driven away. They want nothing to do with him. Because he is disabled, they assume he is a threat and they want him out of their park. Women and men, this is a true story and it's not ancient history. It happened a few weeks ago in a suburban park in Melbourne. And that's my city where I come from. Melbourne, a city that's supposed to be one of the most livable cities in the world. But livable for whom? Not that young man. One study found that people with a psychiatric or intellectual disability will have a negative social experience within 15 minutes of leaving their home. Australia is not a livable country for people with a disability. And I could tell you so many stories, like the ones about children who are not welcome at childcare centres and kindergartens because they have a disability like the ones about children expelled from school because they have a disability, or the one about the young man who lost his promotion because he was un unable to organise new support services in another state within six months of winning a new job, or the, one, the ones about the young people living in group homes forced to go to bed every night at 5pm because the staff say so, unable to help themselves to food from the locked fridges, unable to go out for a walk through the locked doors, or the one about a young man who was assaulted by a fellow resident in his group home, but who continued to live under the same roof as his abuser, 
because there was nowhere for either of them to go. Or the ones about the people who'll sleep in their wheelchairs tonight because there's no one around to help to get them to bed. Or the ones about the families who become so desperate they abandon their children in respite care or in hospital because they can no longer care for them at home. There are so many stories to tell and each with its own heartbreaking punchline. And you will find them in this report shut out. 2010 saw Kelly Vincent elected to South Australian Parliament for Dignity for Disability Party as the voices of the people with disability make themselves heard within the structures that formerly actively oppressed them. And I think it's important to acknowledge that a really active disability movement in Australia is really quite a new thing, you know, and we're very slowly moving away from this idea that uh, disability exists in a charity model. People give poor little Jimmy his new wheelchair or whatever else it is that he needs. But I think we're slowly moving away from that towards a social justice model that says, well, really, Jimmy is symbolic of everyone in this state that needs these services, and we shouldn't give them out of charity, but out of, out of justice and out of saying that this is a basic right and this is what this many people need to live dignified and fulfilling lives. So I really think that that's quite a young movement in itself. So it will take some time to to really get the momentum that that it needs. In 2016, on one hand, the National Disability Insurance Scheme is being rolled out. This scheme is based on the idea that the disabled person themselves will have control of their service delivery. In this brave new world, people with disabilities still fight for wages justice, which we discuss later in the show, And places like Vision Australia no longer see it as a core function to provide employment for their clients. We will give the last word in our small look at disability politics to a representative of the Blind Workers Union at the time of the sacking of the the blind workers. Our communities most disadvantaged. Whereas, for example, if you have no vision impairment, and I'm not for one minute suggesting it's easy. But you may, for example, be employed as a builder, a road digger, a taxi driver, a, you know, all those sort of things, a, a, a stacking shelves on supermarkets, whatever, cleaner. When you're blind or vision impaired, your only opportunity in manual labour was pretty well the two facilities which they've closed. So it's a, it's a manual labour sector using your hands whereas the people that Vision Australia employ and the rest of the organisation are in the area of technology and so forth, so uh, they've got a different skill set. Organisations of this sort are the
I'm not disabled. I'm only disabled by society's inability to provide me with the supports and services I need. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability all day, Saturday 3rd of December, with 3CR. There's got to be inclusive thinking. There's got to be inclusive action. And there's got to be inclusive practising. Why the hell aren't we a bigger voting block? You're on Solidarity Breakfast with me, Annie. We're celebrating International Day of People with Disabilities. And as I said already, on December the 1st, Disability Sports and Recreation held its annual Sports and Recreation Fair down by the Yarra. And it was highlighting the health benefits of sports and recreation for people with disability. Unsurprisingly, these can be life-changing activities as they are for everyone Anyway, I went down to the offices of Disability Sports and Recreation and spoke to CEO Richard Amon to find out more. Well, our broad function is to improve the health of people with disability through participation in sport and recreation. We've been around for over 50 years, an organisation that grew out of two pioneers who went to the 1960 Paralympics um, and competed in wheelchair sports. And then they formed a body that eventually became the Paravic Sports Club and then eventually became Wheelchair Sports Victoria. Then about six years ago, our board decided to change its focus to be a much broader organisation that covered a range of disabilities and tried to support a range of sports, but changed the focus as well to include recreation and really to try and promote the health benefits of people participating in sport and recreation. We work to try and improve an environment where it's easier for people with a disability to be active. So originally we used to run, for example, the sport of wheelchair basketball, but now we've what's termed mainstream that to Basketball Victoria. So ultimately it's probably the best outcome that the sports are integrated within their mainstream sporting bodies. So we've done that with wheelchair basketball. We did a similar thing with uh, intellectual disability with a soccer team and with lawn bowls, we used to run programs. They're now run by Bowls Victoria. So where we can, we've, we've mainstreamed our, our, our sporting activities, but we are currently the state body for wheelchair rugby because it doesn't really align itself closely with the, the sport of mainstream rugby. So that's one aspect about sport delivery, but we still run some activities for people with disability to be involved with, such as summer and winter camps, um, and we provide a range of opportunities for them to, to get active using our equipment library. We have a library where they can come and borrow some adaptive equipment to get them started in a sport which they might not have been able to participate in. So do you have to invest time and thought into adapting particular sports? Um, oh, oh, we'd love to. If we had ultimate uh, unlimited resources, um, we would love to do that. I mean, essentially, we're a, we're a charity, so we rely on mostly community donations to allow us to exist. So we have to spend our resources best where we best can. But we, we often have people coming to us with ideas and suggestions about how a sport or how an activity can be adapted, and we'll work with them as much as we can to try and help them along their journey of making their activity more accessible. 
as an example, this week I had uh, a guy come to visit me who's who's working um, with a new uh, water ski cable park that's being developed in the southeast of Melbourne, and he's trying to make it as inclusive as possible. And he's working on a whole range of technical, um, I guess, outcomes that's, that's going to deliver a, a para wakeboarding sort of opportunity for people with a disability. So. We said to him that we can help him with promoting it, with, with pr- promoting it to our members, w- with with potentially some activities about training their staff so they can be more more accessible in, in in their dealings with people with disability. So we can work with them to try and make it a better environment for that activity to have more chance of being successful. So if there are leagues or groups of people that are involved in trying to include mainstream sports that want to increase their availability to people who have got disabilities, you, you're the people that can help them? We can help. I mean, we, we work with, um, in, in two ways, we, we work a lot with what we call the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Organisations Committee, which is a bit of a mouthful, but that's a committee of about 13 different organisations such as Blind Sports Victoria and Deaf Sports Victoria and Special Olympics. So we work with them to try and imp- improve their capacity. So we like to see ourselves as a, a, a peak body for those organisations. So we have some funding from the state government to try and support those organisations to be more, I guess, efficient and more, more productive in, in the way that they work to try and make it a better environment in general for people with disability. They're the specialist disability sporting groups, but then we have the other side of the coin, which is our mainstream organisations such as Basketball Victoria and Tennis Victoria and, and the like, and they have their own inclusive practices and programs. And where possible, we, we work with them to try and help make sure that they're, they're more effective and that they can, they can work better to serve the people that they're hoping to serve. So is there a clue in there that there's an element of inclusion going on? So there's a sort of a marrying of the mainstream and the dis- uh, disabled communities so that the disabled communities are considered mainstream? Well, I mean, ultimately, the ultimate game is that sport is sport for all, um, and that means that everybody should be able to participate. And the broader inclusion, I guess, drive that's happening in a lot of sectors now, it includes people with disability, but it also includes gender, includes race, uh, includes you know, sexual orientation and those sorts of things. So the word inclusion can mean a lot of different things, um, and so it... The, the current way of thinking in the, the, the promotion, I guess, from, from government and, and other areas is that sport should be something that's available to everybody. And, and so where, I guess, my organisation is really looking at purely the disability component about trying to make it easier for someone to become more active and to get involved. And you have a, a big uh, recreation sports day, don't you? Yeah, yeah. We, every year we do a, a broad festival around International Day with people uh, International Day of People with Disability. Um, at, um, we used to have it at Federation Square for the last six years, but this year we're hosting it at Cran Riverwalk, which is a much more of a flat, accessible venue. And this year, because of the, the, the better venue, we've got 47 exhibitors who are now coming on the day to provide uh, an exhibition about what sports are available, what equipment is available, so that someone with a disability can come along and really find out about a whole world of sport and recreation that they wouldn't previously have been aware of. Uh, what are the 48... Give, me, give us some examples of the 47 exhibitors. Can you off the top of your head? Um, oh, there's a whole range. I mean, they might be sports such as Hockey Victoria or Cycling Victoria or 
or uh, Netball Victoria, but there's other organisations uh, such as Scope who, who work with communication with people with disability. Um, there's YMCA who are demonstrating what camps they have available. There's uh, specialist equipment suppliers who, for example, might provide uh, recumbent bicycles and hand cycles that allows people with disability to be active in a cycling sense. So there's a whole range of people um, from specialist disability organisations to state sporting organisations to support organisations or also just a whole range of, of people who are uh, providing equipment that helps people to become more active. So in the, we're providing this festival and we do it every year and we, we, we fund it with some support from sponsors but we mainly fund it from community donations and we do it because it's a one-stop opportunity for people to come and really find out what's available because we know that that's one of the biggest barriers to people starting a, a life of participation. Now you're doing it in a very public arena so therefore it is also to promote uh, the uh, disabled community to everybody else. Exactly, I mean that, that's a, a great point. What we found is that um, by having it at Federation Square that it used to get a, a huge traffic from people who were just walking past and all of a sudden they can see activities that's going on. We have three different activity zones where we're able to demonstrate um, a whole range of different activities on the day and we have a wheelchair basketball tournament that happens on the day and so what we find is that so many people just walk past and become exposed to this and they walk away with a much greater understanding and awareness about what people with disability can actually do and that's really again one of the other key barriers to participation is the community attitudes and awareness so we can really achieve a huge amount on that day by having everything in a really prominent location and being able to really demonstrate what's possible. It's a very interesting uh, thing because iconically speaking, sport is related to Olympics, perfect body, all those kind of uh, images of uh, you know Australian bronze surfers, that type of thing. Uh, it's really important, isn't it, to connect activity, sport, recreation with people who are disabled? Well, it is. I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned it's, a, it's an iconic Australian thing to do and, and, and that comes back to the core essence about what we're about because if it's something that is open and available to the everyday Australian, there's no reason why it shouldn't be open and equally available to someone with a disability. And, and also because people in Australia, we, we align with our sporting heroes and we, we really, we, we really um, connect with them. And so I think for someone with a disability, they really should, should have their own opportunities to participate. And not everyone needs to be aiming for a lead. I mean, our, our main goal is really to get someone to do anything. I mean, as an example, uh, we have a, a group that we support, which is the Victorian Electric Wheelchair Sports Association. And what they actually do is they have uh, very limited movement capabilities, but they can move their electric wheelchairs with a toggle switch and they play a game on a basketball court. They bump the ball with their wheelchairs as they move them around, but they get to experience all the, the social and the connection benefits that sport can provide by being able to play their game on using their equipment and they still get huge benefit. They can, they can travel to national competitions and, and all those sorts of things. So they get to benefit the, the, the benefits of sport that everybody else can. And that's a really great example about how we're trying to create an environment where sport's available for everybody. Do you uh, register success in some way? Do you, I mean, obviously you have to, you get some funding from government, so you have to register success in some way. But also 
uh, as a charitable organisation and obviously with a board, you need people to understand how successful you are. How do you do that? Well, we do it in a number of ways. I mean, we, we look at, uh, with our government funding, we have to, it's mainly related to wheelchair rugby, so we, we, we track the numbers of participants in that sport. But also for our own interests, we're, also, we're always very interested in what difference that we make with, with our community and our members. We have, we have about 2,700 members and about 1,600 of those are individuals with a disability. And we do a survey, an annual survey every year. We ask them how active they are and what they've been doing. And we can then compare that with the general participation statistics that we know are out there for people with disability. And from that, we're able to know that our members are generally about twice as active as what that the general population is. So what that tells us is that people who get involved, who find out information and, and can really take advantage of the services that we provide, that we know that they're going to get more active. And we also, during our festival last year, we ran some surveys of the people who were attending just to see what the outcomes of the festival was. And of the 100 people who we surveyed, we found that I think 48% of them found a new activity for them to do that they were then going to take up beyond that festival. So it really demonstrates that it's, it's achieving some outcomes that, that are really important. Have you got any anecdotes that uh, confirm to you that uh, doing sport recreation is good for someone? I've got a few. It, it's, I mean, I've been in this role for 12 months and what I've really tried to do is to, is to really delve down deep and to get involved with some of our activities. Um, and I've, I've been involved with um, our wheelchair AFL team. I, I put my hand up and, and hopped in a wheelchair for six weeks and trained with the team and, and actually played with, with the team. And I got to know a few of the players and some of their experiences and some of their backgrounds. And uh, during that participation, uh, one of the members actually came to me and he said, look, Richard, I'd probably be dead if it wasn't for you guys. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, that, was, that just took my breath away to realise that what we're actually doing is actually life-changing benefits. And, and in another, another example, I was a volunteer on our winter camp where we go up to Falls Creek and we take a, a bunch of children to, to Falls Creek and we give them an on-the-snow experience. And there were a number of participants on that camp who I was able to observe dramatic changes in the way that they, that they um, were able to operate in, in, their, in, in their confidence, in, in their ability to relate to, to others. And you, you can just see how sport and, and activity um, provides a huge amount of benefits that, that people can take over into the rest of their life. So it's, it's not just the actual on-the-day sporting and recreation activity. It, it's their whole broader confidence and their whole connection with the wider community that really provides huge benefits. Thanks. Uh, one thing that we are doing that's, that's really important, uh, we're wanting to get kids with disability more active because, because they're, that's the starting point of a whole life of, of activity which is, which is absolutely vital to their ongoing health. So we've developed a, an online game um, that's going to allow kids to, to track their activity levels and also have a gaming environment to be able to, to get motivated to keep going to the next level and, and the next challenge. And we've been very fortunate to have Dylan Alcott, which is a, a triple Paralympic gold medalist, as the ambassador for that program. So he actually appears in the game and he pops up at various stages and encourages the kids to the, go to the next level. Um, but we're launching that on uh, December the 1st at Glenira Sport and Aquatic Centre. Um, the, the game will become live and will be uh, active for the first time. And so we're really excited about this new initiative that hopefully is going to get a, a whole range of more kids being involved in sport.
So how do people access that game? It's going to be available. We, we tossed up whether to make it as an app where people could download it, but the easiest way that we found is to have it available on our website. So that's going to be on www.dsr.org.au. And so from the website, you'll be able to go to the links to the game, and it's called Passport to Participation. No, no Passport to Play. So it's about play, and it's called Passport to Play because it involves a passport that takes a person on a journey all around the world as they become more active. And they, it, it's a game that's aimed at kids, so they're, they're fighting the, these sloths who are, who are taking over the world and making people lazy and inactive. So by being active, they fight the sloths and they get to go on this game that takes them all around the world, um, discovering various different places where Dylan Orcott is there supporting them along the way. Calling all supporters of refugee rights. Join the Refugee Action Collective for the Human Rights Day fundraiser on the 10th of December at the Reverence Hotel Footscray. Come and enjoy some of Melbourne's best music, comedy and performance poetry. Your support helps with costs of future RAC campaigns for refugee rights. Check out the Reverence Hotel's website for details. Tickets are $15 or $10 concession. Refugee Action Collective is a 3CR supporter. You want life, you want love, you want hope, you've got to fight for it. You want freedom, you want justice, you want peace, you've got to fight for it. Disability culture, what is it about? You can live life free, you can live life proud, you can be living out loud. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability. All day, Saturday 3rd of December with 3CR. From 2 to 7pm, access all areas with live performances and progressive beats from artists and performers with a disability. Disability cool. Disability hot. The red hot power of different with a capital D. Flatness. A weak solidarity Breggy team listener when today this long-haired commie greenie wooden work at an iron station is emphasising the cause of people with disabilities as if people with disabilities need their cause emphasised. Why, they've never had it so good. I can recall back in 1970 when, OK, there may have been a few barriers, a few biases, but back then governments acted. Why, they promised that all public transport, for instance, would be 100% accessible within 15 years. Are they never satisfied? Never satisfied, but should be. Those long-haired commie lots who fear US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo elect Donald Trample the poor might trample the poor, can relax. Turns out Donald's one of them. A dangerous long-haired, well, bits of it, bits of long-haired commie greenie confirmed by no less reliable a source than that repository of wisdom and truth the Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head. In his predictable eulogy of Cuban revolutionary Fidel, about whom he didn't have a lot of nice things to say, in fact, none. If ever there was proof the ABC was a publicly funded waste of public funds, a long-haired commie front brainwashing the innocent, it was its coverage of Fidel's demise, he told us, and don't forget this is out of character because it's not often he gets stuck into the ABC. Wyatt even said some good things about him, suggesting he had done good things for Cuba, ignoring the fact that the pre-revolutionary rich and their descendants were celebrating the death across the briny in Miami. So, 
given the ABC coverage we heard and saw, listener, led with Donald declaring Fidel was a brutal commie dictator who made Cuba unlivable, made worse my emphasis by prolonging their lives through its health system when they all want to die, obviously, to escape the misery, but are brutally, dictatorially kept alive by the health system and brutally educated and housed, and the list goes on. So obviously, the Lord Rupert usual suspect columnist knows quoting Donald proves a a long-haired commie greenie wouldn't work in an iron bias. So axiomatically, Donald must be a long-haired commie, and given the usual suspect columnist himself just a few days earlier had quoted Donald quite favourably and attacked those who attacked Donald as long-haired commies, he must have had a sudden conversion or, and it's possible I suppose, bolt through the head himself is a closet long-haired commie greenie. The response made it obvious the pre-1959 Cuba the streets of Miami longed for and mourned was not an evil, evil, brutal dictatorship, but a good, good, greatest little economic order of them all dictatorship, leaving us to fear for the US of people now they have innocently elected a long-haired commie-commie greenie to run the place, a non-brutal, non-dictator also leaving us to ponder why, back in evil Cuba, the non-rich who did not flee across the ocean to the sanctuary of those who ran the pre-1959 economy were mourning the loss of Fidel and saying positive things about him. Something else about people with disabilities who've never had it so good. Why, I can recall back in 1980 when, okay, there may have been a few barriers, a few biases, irresponsible protesters chained themselves to trams, blocked access to railway stations, blockaded the transport minister's office claiming he didn't care about them, but... Back then, governments acted. Why? They promised that all public transport, for instance, would be 100% accessible within 15 years. Are they never satisfied? Don't know about you, but I've developed this minor disability myself, this spontaneous tick, uncontrollable reaction, whenever I hear the usual suspect cross benches on issues like the smash the evil union's jackboots commission say they haven't yet decided which way they'll vote. An uncontrollable cynical sneer. Why would that be? Canberra was the victim of irresponsible protests, which Lord Rupert of Wapping summed up with with his renowned responsibility in his Wapping sin. House of louts! A mob of 40 unruly protesters shut down Parliament after sidetracking security, many super-gluing their hands to rails. Sidetracking, which presumably means outsmarting, having a plan, a Canberra first. And that uncontrollable socialist deputy supremo, Tanya Blubber-Sink, uh, sick, blubbered that these people had attacked the very basis of our democracy. They must realise the government will not close down the concentration camps, so, sorry, refugee idyllic holiday island resorts, and should put their faith in democracy, trust in our role as an opposition, guaranteeing we will not close down the refugee idyllic holiday island resorts. And Lord Rupert and his government and his opposition agreed people have a right to protest, but they must protest responsibly. And by responsible, Lord Rupert spoke for them, my government and my opposition and I, we, mean it must have no impact whatever. Uh, Must be ineffectual, Lord Rupert. Uh, Same thing, you idiot. 
Meanwhile, the government has declared it will not be held to ransom. The passage of the Crush the Evil Union's jackboots con mission bill shows we won't be held to ransom, big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull declared. Uh, so the bill is identical to the one you called an urgent election over and forgot to mention during the months and months of campaigning? Certainly identical. Well, apart from a few minor changes, minor amendments suggested by our very, very, very close friends on the cross benches. Uh, to make it less draconian on workers, allow unions to act like, like unions. Oh no, that's totally unchanged. The government and our very, very, very close friends agreed that evil must not be changed. No, we've eliminated any clauses that may have innocently captured caring employers and contractors. We've provided more work for caring employers. Sensible amendments ensuring the bill crushes only those who must be crushed. And... Hang'em High Senator Derrick Lyncham puffed out his chest. I made sure on this December 3, evil unions usurping our symbol of freedom, the Eureka flag, will remain a capital offence. Uh, what about their freedom? I exercised my freedom and they are now free not to fly it. But they did display their human side through that side-splitting stand-up comedian serving caring business class finances minister Kelly Oda Wire Workers So Evil, who told a superannuation audience union super funds must be forced to adopt the same standards as banks and financial institutions. She had the audience rolling in the aisles. Very funny person. Falsely claiming being crushed. People with disabilities have never had it so good. Why, I can recall back in 1990, when, OK, there may have been a few barriers, a few biases, irresponsible protesters chained themselves to trams, blocked access to railway stations, blockaded the transport minister's office, claiming he didn't care about them. Remember the late Katie Ball irresponsibly blocking access or locking on and then having the gall, the cruelty, to slam on the brakes when the, sorry, the constabulary tried to move her wheelchair, which weighed about 15 tonnes, give or take, resulting in all these coppers staggering around Melbourne with hernias and serious back injuries. All over minor issues like closing railway lines, St Kilda and Port Melbourne, which removed wheelchair access, but back then governments acted. Why, they promised that all public transport, for instance, would be 100% accessible within 15 years. Are they never satisfied? On Malcolm's strongman declaration he won't be held to ransom, this backpacker tax business proves his point. Our position is 32% and we won't budge. Big economic guru scuttled them more last son was adamant. Yes, our position is 19% and we won't budge. He was firm. Absolutely. It's 15% or nothing. Well, or 32. Scuttled them was unswerving. We won't be held to ransom. Back to those false claims by people with disabilities who've never had it so good. Why, I can recall back in 2000 when, OK, there may have been a few barriers, a few biases, irresponsible protesters carrying on, but back then governments acted. Why, they promised that all public transport, for instance, would be 100% accessible within 15 years. Are they never satisfied?
Indeed, with so many claiming a pension from the public purse on the specious grounds they have trouble finding work or even claim they can't work, and all this money being poured into the NDIS, the insurance scheme, don't they have any conscience at all? Don't they know True Blue Aussie's AAA rating is under threat because we're spending too much and their bludging on the public purse is making it more difficult for the government to fix up the deficit, the spending problem by slashing taxes on the rich, which would make us all better off? All, note that all, including these selfish, selfish people who bludge on the NDIS and the public purse. Here we are, tossing and turning all night, unable to sleep over the prospect of losing our AAA rating, and these people don't even care. Oh, just a few useful clues if we ever do have the misfortune to meet one of these bludgers. Assume they are, they are stupid. Take for granted they can't hear. Use the most simple language and yell. Always yell. And finally, it's not like they've been largely ignored. Why, we don't have to recall now right here in 2016 when, OK, there may be a few barriers, a few biases, but the governments have promised to act. Why, they've promised that all public transport, for instance, will be 100% accessible within 15 years. Are they never satisfied? Good morning. Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, celebrating International Day of People with Disability. And uh, the last contribution that Solidarity Breakfast has got to offer for this wonderful day as we celebrate uh, is a discussion I had or a chat I had with uh, Kirsty Wilson. Now, Kirsty Wilson is the Principal Legal Practitioner for AED Legal Centre. AED stands for Association of Employees with Disability. Now, Kirsty is the co-winner of this year's National Disability Award for the category Excellence in Justice and Rights Promotion. She's been working for a long time on wage justice for people with disability. Uh, what we've been working since 2002 is in relation to wages for people working in Australian disability enterprises or what was known as sheltered workshops where they had been paid a dollar a day, five cents an hour, that sort of thing. What we said is that, you know, they should ha have the same rights to, um, to wages, to equitable wages as anybody else in the workforce and that if every other employee is, you know, there's a minimum wage that these workers are also entitled to have their wages assessed at the minimum at the minimum wage. So basically, you know, you start off, say, for example, $10 an hour. If that person is not 100% productive that, or they might be 80% productive, they might get 80% of the wage, so $8 an hour. But you've got to have that starting point and these workers didn't have that. So we've been fighting to get that right and that it be a, a wage assessment tool that is um, that uses productivity only, not competencies which aren't relevant to these workers. Can you explain that to me? All right. What that means is like the tool that we actually took all, and it went all the way through to the High Court where it was confirmed that, the, that it was actually discriminatory was divided into two parts. So there was the productivity element and there was a competency element and things like um, what meetings does your boss go to or what do you do if the, if the uh, machinery is faulty? Well, these aren't relevant questions. I mean, I don't get asked what, well, 
most of us don't get asked what meetings do, does our boss go to and if we don't know the answer, we lose a percentage of, their, of our wage. And that's what happened with these with this particular tool is that so somebody, some employees might end up with zero for the competency and say they were 50% productive, they would, it would then be divided into half because they were zero for the um, competencies. So they'd end up with 25% of the wage. And we just said that's not, you know, that's discriminatory. Yeah, it's uh, extraordinary <laughs> that yes. it should be based on <laughs> competence. That's called competency. Yes, that's exactly right. And and in some sections of that part is, you know, they might only work in the gardening section. So for the other three of the um, industry-specific competencies, they would get zero for those other three, but they don't work in that area. So again, you know, if I, you know, I being a lawyer, I only work in that area. But say that the assessment was that I needed to know what to do in, you know, in, in different different um like working in a bar i don't know what to do i don't know how to pour drinks or mix drinks so i'd lose a percentage of my wage because i don't know how to do that or i don't work in that particular area and that that's what this tool meant so when you're talking about a tool is this a computerized tool no it's not it's a it's a design that how how can you assess wages to because they are considered that they shouldn't be paid the minimum wage. So what we say, there's a supported wage, and what happens with the supported wage, which is used in open employment, is that you have a comparator, and the comparator is the average worker. So, for example, you work at Coles, you're packing or um, packing the shelves, you've got the average worker, um, there's a, a benchmark that's worked out. So this is what effectively the average worker would do in half an hour. So the worker with the disability who isn't 100% productive will be measured or timed in accordance with that with that benchmark. And if they come up at 90% of what that, um, what that benchmark is, then they will be paid 90% of the wage. But it is only on their productivity. It's only measured on how many um, stockings that they, you know, put the lollies in for Christmas, for example, or how how long it takes them to to um, do facing up at the supermarket in a certain area, and how much you know how much time it would take some of the average worker. So it's not the fastest worker, it's not the slowest worker. So that's that's a tool to assess how how you can pay people. Well, it's a very interesting approach, isn't it, uh, to uh, see a person in this light. But, of course, you're going to the court, so you have to work it out in a very uh, uh, rigid, rational sort of a way. Uh, and you're talking about um, a sheltered workshops, I suppose that's what... I don't know if that's well, the term that's still employment. used. Supported yeah, it's, employment. Look, it's not, but a lot of people know them by, the, by that name rather than um, they were when... The tool was designed. It was business, they were business services. Now they're Australian Disability Enterprises or ADEs. So they, you know, they sort of changed the name, but they they're supported employment. So they're effectively set up. Um, with, they have funding from the government to provide that support, but the wages are paid out of the contracts. So if they are contracted to do the the mowing or car wash, for example, or washing windows. 
that's the job that they do and and they you know the business has to has to make the you know put the tenders out for whatever business they do it could be sugar sticks in boxes muesli bars you know there's a whole range of things that are done and the majority of of the work is production like work okay and so are we talking about people with intellectual disabilities or phys- physical disabilities <laughs> Look, about 85% approximately, and that number is, you know, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but approximately 85% of the workers, and there's around 20,500 or 21,000 of um, employees, supported employees around Australia. So probably around 85% of the workers have an intellectual disability. And so the idea behind these services are to give people self sufficiency well the idea is to give them um supported you know to give them employment but um to provide support where where they're needed where it's needed and and that might mean you know reminding them to stay on task or um reminding them to you know not to talk so much you know in the in regards i don't mean that in a patronizing way but like in regards you know you're here to work so therefore you need to you need to be working um or it could be that they need to be continually shown how to how to do something or it might take longer to train them in in different tasks work tasks this is yeah no i understand i mean what what's the purpose of it ultimately for the person who is disabled that's what i'm thinking all right. Well, the purpose is to is employment. Yes, yeah, so that they it's actually have employment, and yeah. they actually have wages. Well, that's right, and the wages should be wages that mean that they it will help them in regards to having a quality of life, their living standards. So, if you're going to pay them a dollar a day, you're not going to contribute to their living standards. That's right. So, the organisations that are involved in this are they private organisations? Well, they are private as such, but they're funded by the government. I mean, you can't just go and open an ADE. You have there are a certain number of places, and you have to, ha- you know, have those places. So, but they're run by you know um, Wesley Scope. Um, a, a very large one is Endeavour Foundation. They have um, ADEs in Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. So, you know, or they could be run by the Usually, um, church groups or they they see themselves as doing good works. That's what I'm getting at. They yes, see themselves yes. as being social welfare organisations. Yes, right across the board. So I'm not saying that um, this employment is social welfare because it, it is employment. They are going to work. They're doing a job, and they're doing a necessary job. What it, you know, whichever way you look at it, the work that they do is is important. Yeah, no, that's right. It's just interesting because remember a couple of years ago, Vision Australia decided it was going to, uh, didn't see it as being a core part of their operations to keep providing uh, uh, employment to members. Well, yeah, and look, I guess the thing is that they have to compete for the contracts and as more and more contracts sort of go overseas it does make it more difficult for for them to be the work but you know there are ADEs out there that um one that I know of 
they're stationed outside the um, the local tip, and this is a rural um, town. So the ADE is set up outside the tip. Before any person goes to the tip, they have to stop at the um, at the ADE. They go through it and take out anything that they can be used, and it could be old books, it could be um, wood, you know, um, different posts or cut-offs of wood. It could be white goods. And so before they can go to the tip, everything is, is taken out that can be used. And they have a huge um, sort of, I don't know whether it's a warehouse or however you look at it, but you can go there and you can buy furniture, you can buy wood for, you know, you're making something out in the garden. There's just a huge range. They also have a section which probably isn't an ADE, but it's, it's, it joins on to the ADE where they repair the white goods. And so people who, you know, who want to buy things at a, you know, reduced price can go out there and it's a bit like one of, you know, the, um, they used to call them op shops. I don't know what they call them now, but it, you know what I mean. That yeah. It's, it's like but so that. It's, a, it's a, a local initiative. Yeah, and it, it's fantastic. Well, uh, what I was won- wondering about this, with this work that you've been doing over such a long time, uh, are you struggling with... Uh, general uh, societal perceptions. Is that an issue? Yes, yes, it is an issue. People think that we're trying to close ADEs down, that we don't, um, that we're not looking at the bigger picture. But I, I would disagree. I think that, to me, it is really important that every employee or every person in Australia, adult person, has a right to um, to earn an equitable wage has a right to be able to go to work and you know the argument that it's uh, it's it's more than work it's social it's their social life they've got their friends there they're safe i agree that 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 is part of it but we all have friends at work we all have it is you know everyone who goes to work it is very much part of our of our life and why should a person with disability not have that same right to to do that but we we do yes as I said we do have a lot of people think that we we're um, trying to force ADEs to close down that that's just not true at all I know that there's arguments that if they have to pay productivity wages they won't the they won't be able to be viable and to me it's two separate arguments you need to have an equitable tool you need to be able to assess wages with a tool that is going to be non-discriminatory. The viability of the ADE is another matter. That's the business. The business itself needs to be viable. Why should a worker miss out on being paid because the argument is that, that they're, not, um, they're not going to be viable? And, and the other thing is we don't know. We won't know until a new tool is, um, is set up and, and is rolled out whether an ADE or, you know, particular business is going to be viable. We haven't seen any any figures in regards to that or ev- any evidence to suggest it. We know that there's a number of ADEs who use the supported wage, which is the tool, as I said before, we, that we believe should be used. And, you know, so they're already using it. But these tools that, you know, the business services wage assessment tools or BSWAT and a number of other tools there's 27 other tools in the um in the award which have all got competencies 
And we're saying that they are all discriminatory and that they should be removed. Two more of these tools are in the federal court at the moment. That's Green Acres and, and Skills Master. And our argument is the same, that they are discriminatory and they should be removed. I know if, if it was my child, I would be fighting tooth and nail for her rights to be recognised. I know that every one of my clients who come to me and say, I want to be paid a decent wage, I want to be able to go to work, yes, but I want to be able to have the, have the things that I can't afford because being on the DSP does not pay for me to have a steak occasionally or to go on a holiday or to go um, down to Tasmania because my football team is Hawthorne and I want to be able to go and support them. Like so many people who don't have a disability, who work in open employment, they have those, are able to go and do that. And, and my clients want the same rights. You're on Solidarity Breakfast celebrating Disability Day and uh, we're listening to a, a chat with Kirsten Wilson from the AED Legal Centre about wage justice. This is a whole issue of about charity, isn't it? This idea that we're doing you a favour. And uh, then you talk about the notion that uh, uh, the worker is uh, taking a lower wage because otherwise the business wouldn't function. So actually it's a two-way street that this charity, this uh, misplaced charity is expected to uh, play out. Yes, that's right. And the argument that, oh, it's, it's much harder to work with it or to deal with a group of people with disabilities. So, you know, you can understand that it's, that it's okay to pay them that lower wage. Well, I don't agree with that either. It's, um, it, it's not a charity. They are going to work. They are, you know, packing Christmas stockings or Easter eggs into, you know, with toys or muesli bars or, you know, a whole range of things. Um, they, they do the tea, you know, T2 um, is one of the contracts I've seen. Gardening, washing windows, car washing, cleaning, you know, office cleaning. There's a whole range of things that they do. And as I said before, these are real jobs. And the business is being paid the contract. Yes, well they're, they're not just being paid these uh, challenges, legal challenges. Are they related like most uh, cases to individuals who have come to you, to your centre or are you... Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean we, we can't take action unless we're instructed. You know, being a solicitor I have to, you know, client, the client will come and will instruct me to act for them and they will say, look, I, and like with Green Acres and with um, Skills Master, both of those particular clients work at, you know, the, di- the different ADEs and have come and said, the wages I get, I don't agree that these are... This is a fair assessment on my wage. So it takes a certain amount of bravery on the part of the litigant. Oh, definitely, definitely. And um, it's it's not easy. You know, like Liz Nogen, who took the action on behalf of Michael initially, you know, she she started it all off back in 2003, 2004. She's an incredible woman. You know, the strength that she has and, and she... Her view was that my I've got two sons, 
one with disability, one without disability. And Michael is just as entitled as his brother to have an equitable wage and to have um, opportunities in the in the future. You know, I'm not going to be here forever and I want him to be able to earn enough money um, to to be able to have a decent, you know, a quality um, way of life. Well, that's fascinating. And Gordon Pryor, who also um, was... So there were two applicants there. He came a little bit later, but they were joined in the end. And, and he was the same. He said, I, I want to be paid a wage that... Um, I don't think that this is right. And he's interesting because he left the ADE and went to work at a at a laundromat and jumped from, I think he was on $3 something. Yeah, it was around that amount, up to $15 an hour. Oh, my goodness. And that was under the supported wage. So, you know, a huge jump. And his hours while, you know, working at the laundromat increased. So he was, he was working longer hours and he was earning a lot more money. And it gave him you know, a quality of life. He was able to buy things, do things that he wanted to do. But he also, because, you know, you're allowed to earn around $85 a week before you start, it starts impacting on the pension. And this isn't just for people with disabilities. It's for people on Newstart. It's for people, you know, for whatever different um, different pension that they're on. They're allowed to earn a certain amount before they're in they start losing money from the pension. So he was much better off earning a decent wage. Yeah, that's fantastic. Would have changed his entire life. That's exactly right, yeah. I was really intrigued to know that uh, your legal centre existed. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that came about? Well, when I first started working in this area, it was in 2002, I worked, it was for a bigger organisation and we were just one section of that that organisation. And, you know, the government decided that it was, that was a conflict of interest to, um, because we were adversarial, because obviously legal is adversarial, is seen as being adversarial, and the others were service providers, but also the employment area, for example, they were finding people jobs. But if there were issues with those with those jobs, they might come to us to ask for representation. So there's that conflict is, you know, we're trying to maintain you in this job, but we've got the advocacy section who is challenging the way that you're being treated, for example. If that does that make sense? It does. Yeah, and so anyway, the government stopped funding Which government? that organisation. Um, federal government. So we're funded under the National Disability Advocacy Program, so NDAP program. Okay. And they, so, but they wanted obviously the service to continue. So we were, we set, we were set up as a separate association and applied for the funding and got it. So effectively the, the team from, from that organisation moved across to AED and we, we established um, AED Legal Centre through the Association of Employees with Disability. So that was in 2008. And since then, we have we have grown our numbers. So when I started in 2002, we had nine clients. So we now have around 350. The clients, what are the range of clients? Well, we have those who we're working on in relation to BSWAT and 
the other wage tools, but we also have, oh, we've got a hearing at the moment at, the, in, at VCAT, and that's in relation to a, an employee who is um, disciplined in, and the impact on with her disability, that she was treated differently and basically shouldn't have been disciplined. But anyway. Anyway, that's um, another issue. And yeah. th- that's another issue. But so there's a discrimination in the way that she was, she's been treated. We've got another one later this week who, um, an unlawful termination. So we do jobs at risk. We have a number of educational matters where children are not there because of their disabilities. They need accommodations in at school and it, it could be that that's, those accommodations are not being um, given. So we only do employment and education and it has to link to the disability. So if somebody comes and they've got a disability but it doesn't link to the issue, then we're not going to be able to assist them. Now, do, um, are you at all connected to the system for... Uh uh, um, community legal centres are they? Is that at all? We are. We're a member of community of the community legal, so the federation and also the national, the NACL one. Yes. But we don't. Uh, we're not funded under the, the, the same same program as what they are. Yeah, They're, right. Um, funded under the Atten- attorney general's program, so yeah. we don't get, and we don't get the same sort of funding. Our funding is a lot less than oh, than right. that. Okay. So it, it is. A, it's a real struggle. Um, financially, because obviously doing legal work is very costly, and the the clients we don't the clients don't pay for our services. Yes, right, that makes or, sense. You know the the work we do, and we um, barristers like today with the hearing that we've got. It's a two day hearing, and we've got a barrister who has come through Justice Connect, and they and he is doing it pro bono which is so generous when you consider how much time, you know, in preparing a hearing. I mean, you know, it's a huge for us as well. But they to give their time without being paid is, is incredible. Yeah, it's good. Now, the other thing is, um, is it only in Victoria or uh, is it in other states as well? The work we do. Yeah, well, the work, only, yes, I'm there, sure. There is only, um, AD is the only one in Australia. Wow. Which is such a shame it really should be all over Australia there's such a demand for the work and and the thing is we don't advertise we we couldn't advertise if we did we we wouldn't be able to keep up with the with the workload we struggle as it is we have a number of students so we work with Deakin University their law school and uh, in and we have up to nine or ten students each trimester who come one day a week so they do Fifteen weeks, and without them, and without our other students and volunteers, we we just wouldn't be able to function. We mm. fundraise. I mean, I was at a Trash and Treasure yesterday. You know, fundraising for AED. We do film nights, sell chocolates. You name it, we do anything we can to try and earn. You know, to get extra money in for AED because our it's a you know struggle with the funding we get, but our clients need that support. You know, there's filing fees that many of them, you know, they lose their job. They haven't got the money to file to pay the filing fees. So we try and fundraise to, to pay for those sort of things. It's interesting too because every piece of legal work and success you have, you change history, don't you? 
Well, that's right. I mean, it might be for just for the individual, but it, it but then like with B-Squad, the impact that they that you know over twenty thousand workers will get better wages from the work, and they are. There's also they've into the government um, introduced legislation that that is going to back pay pe- people who were assessed under B-SWAT. So they will get the, the money that was owed to them because they were assessed under a discriminatory tool. Yeah, it, it has changed the, the lives of, of many of our, of our clients. And it's, you know, it's not an area that there's huge amounts of money paid. It, that's just not the jurisdiction we work in. But to see the difference that it makes to the clients, how you know, that they've stood up for themselves, the sense of empowerment and their self-esteem, those are what are really important and that's what we fight for. We fight to give them a, the same rights as everybody else, but we fight to give them a voice. Thanks very much, Kirsty, for talking to me. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thank you for that. listening. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning on 3CR. I hope you have enjoyed our look back at some milestones in the political struggle for rights by people with disabilities. We followed that up with a look at disability sports and recreation and then the fight for wage justice for workers with disability. Enjoy the rest of 3CR's tribute to people with disability on this International Day of People with Disability 2016. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.